Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 222. My name's Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing something very different. I've put up on social media whether people thought it was okay that I do a podcast about my recent trip to Sydney which I did this week and everyone went yeah it's your podcast go for it. So what I'm going to do is talk about my uh, four-day trip to Sydney essentially four-day trip to Sydney and how I felt about it what I did maybe a little bit about some Sydney-based movies and uh just a little bit of a philosophical ramble because for me it was a very important trip in a lot of ways and it gave me time to think about things. It's not going to negatively affect the podcast, believe me. But I just had, you know, just a little, I felt very philosophical about it and I thought I could do a podcast about this, but I wanted to make sure that you, the audience, are fine with me doing that. So anyway, I'm going to get the contact details out of the way now and then I'm going to talk about uh, the trip to Sydney I took from Monday to Thursday last week. Welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast with your host, Terry Frost. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a two-weekly podcast of classic movie appreciation. The only rule is that the movies must be more than 20 years old. You can leave feedback by emailing feedbackpaleo at gmail.com or by visiting the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can also support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema. This podcast may contain adult worlds and concepts, so please enjoy it. My city of Sydney, I miss the warmth of you, miss the heart of your people, that little church steeple in Woolloomooloo. White polka dotting the blue of the bay As they glide on their way Through a clear afternoon Night folks thirsting for fun Meeting most everyone At the cross as they toss in there Okay, so it came about like this. I found out I could get a cheap train fare to Sydney because I've got what they call a seniors card now. Uh, it was going to be fairly cheap, even to get a first-class ticket. Now, first-class train tickets to Sydney, it sounds great. It sounds like you're travelling. Eddie had to uh, Dubai and getting a, a really posh experience. But no, all you get is a bit more legroom. Everything else is pretty much the same. So I got the extra leg room and uh, Sal took me into town and saw me off at the train station on the XPT, which is a, a very 1980s kind of train. There's no Wi-Fi on it. There's nowhere to plug in your USB. There's nowhere to recharge a laptop. It's basically bare bones, pre-wireless technology kind of train. 
and it's full of old people. Now, I'm 60. I've told you that before, and I'm honest about it. But I don't like hanging around with old people because a lot of them piss me off. A lot of them are kind of, you know, daughtery. Now, I'm not saying... There are people my age who act and feel like they are about 30 years older than me. And one of the issues I've got is people who, for instance, they've got a buffet car on the train. And people who go to the buffet car and spend time holding the line up while they look at the menu, even though there's a menu in each seat on the train. And then they ask questions about the food and then they finally order the food. Then they get their money out. Then they get their food. Then they slowly put their money back into their purse or their bag. And then they go, and it takes forever, and it holds up everybody else. It's a very kind of selfish attitude. And the train was full of people like that. And also people who don't know how to lock toilet doors, because I went to the toilet, which is kind of like an airline toilet, and ended up staring at an old Chinese lady's bum because she hadn't clipped the door shut while she was at the toilet. Um, Didn't help my appetite particularly, but um, yeah, it's just annoying um it's 11 hours now australia should have better trains than this we're supposed to be a first world country and yet to travel 900 kilometers or so to sydney takes 11 hours on the train we should have a bullet train or something like that there are three four hours tops just whips you through there total train to busan thing without the zombies but we don't have that because various governments spent their money giving a billion dollars to Indian coal mine owners so they can open enormous coal mines in Queensland and shit like that so the infrastructure is is I'm sounding really cranky here but um, for me the whole trip was kind of positive and kind of a um, an eye-opening experience and it asked got me to ask a lot of questions about myself but let's just put down the fact that the train was boring now, I did read a couple of books on the train. I did a, a whole bunch of notes for this podcast and for future podcasts. I did a little bit of writing. I intermittently uh, played on social media. One of the other issues you've got is that there are no cell phone towers on about half of the train track between Melbourne to Sydney. So if you're making a phone call or if you're doing a Facebook update or uploading uh, something to Instagram, Chances are about 50-50 it's going to drop out for about 25 minutes at a go until you hit the next town. So that was one of the other problems I had. But nonetheless, I, I kept myself amused. And um, I left at, uh, what time was it? 8.30 in the morning and got in to Sydney about 9 o'clock at night. Uh, no, it wasn't. It was about 8 o'clock at night. Sorry, 8 o'clock at night. So... I didn't eat too much on the train. And that's the other thing with the train too. The train has the sort of food that very conservative old people eat. There really wasn't anything interesting to have. They had spaghetti bolognese and they had beef in red wine sauce with boiled vegetables. And the sandwiches, well, I ended up eating a sandwich. The sandwiches were crazy retro sandwiches. They were things like corned beef with pickles and cheese so i had a corned beef with pickles and cheese sandwich something i hadn't seen since vhs days and uh, you know i kind of kept body and soul together on that kind of stuff and bottles of water 
So the train arrived in Sydney, and it's about 8 o'clock at night. So me and my suitcase, um, I walked about the three blocks to my hotel. Now, I booked in a cheap hotel on the edge of Sydney's Chinatown, which was the best thing I could possibly have done. There wasn't a better location ever. And I've got to give Sal a lot of thanks for this because she found me the hotel. And I got what they call a matchbox room. Now, that indicates the size of the room. It was cheap. It had a single bed, an enormous wardrobe, a TV hung over the foot of the bed, and a bathroom that was the same size as the main room. It was tiny, and the air conditioning was just a little bit loud, but I fixed that up by buying earplugs. Nonetheless, I liked it. I mean, it was cosy. I had enough PowerPoints to plug everything in, and I took a shit ton of technology with me. I took a laptop. I took a tablet. I took a phone. I took um, battery backups for the phone. Um, I took all sorts of other bits and pieces of technology with me and of course because of my sleep apnea I also have a CPAP machine all of that plugged in really nicely so I'm quite happy with the Pension Hotel in George Street so I get there and by the time I've checked in and everything it's about nine o'clock at night beautiful night it's warm it's humid it's what I remember Sydney spring nights to be and there is a shit ton of food choices now I was a little bit tired after such a long train trip so your decision-making capabilities are kind of compromised at that stage. And so I went across the road and got some Korean deep-fried chicken, and it was fantastic. Spicy, tart, even the chips were just done in salt. They had um, things like allspice and Chinese spices of all kinds on them. And it cost about the same as if I had have got KFC or McDonald's or something like that. And... It was a lovely meal. I just enjoyed it the hell out of it. So that was the first day I ended up crashing, slept really well, and woke up early the next morning. So I'm going to go back a step now because this isn't going to end up being any kind of sequential narration. Um, I'm going to kind of wind things up at the end and just talk about how I felt. But the reason I went, apart from the cheap fare, was I needed a break. Uh, so and I have been... We weren't used to spending so much time together, all the time basically, so I said, how about I go to Sydney, uh, my sister has just put mum into her nursing home because she can't look after herself in her flat anymore, so I really feel like I should go up there and see mum and maybe do a few other things, there are a few people I want to catch up with in Sydney and um, I know you don't want to go, so I want to go there, I'll go there for four days two days in Sydney, two days traveling. And she said, fine. So we booked it all in and um, and that's exactly what happened. So I wake up the next morning and it's fairly early. And to be honest with you, Chinatown doesn't really open that much in the morning. There's one place, the Empress Bakery on Dixon Street, which is the main drag of Chinatown, which fortunately they've turned into a pedestrian plaza with full-grown trees up in the middle of Chinatown in between narrow in a narrow street. It's just got the best vibe ever. So I went to the Emperor's um, Bakery place because they do something called Emperor Puffs, which are these little pastry puffs with custard inside them, and the custard is cooked inside the pastry. Uh, there's an injection molding machine and a great big cast iron conveyor belt which brings the 
puffs in a big circle over heated elements and then you get them fresh and they're hot and they've been cooked the custard's been cooked inside the pastry they're the best thing ever so i got there at uh, 7 15 when it opened but the empress puffs don't start until 12. so i was thinking oh fuck i'm not waiting around till 12 o'clock even though these things are the best dessert snack ever and they're great because they give you six of them for two bucks you can buy dozens of them for pocket change if you want to and just gut yourself on it which i didn't do i only had six in a go when i eventually did get them so i um I went there and I thought, okay, what else have they got? And they had steamed pork buns. Uh, the Chinese people call them bao. And they're kind of doughy um, buns steamed with minced pork and um, spices and things in them. So I got a few of those and sat down under one of these enormous trees in Chinatown and ate the bao for breakfast, which was great. Uh, it was just kind of low-key and wonderful. I didn't have anything I needed to do till 12 o'clock. When I was meeting a friend of mine, Alex Ozan, who uh, for lunch up in King's Cross because he works for a travel agency in King's Cross. Uh, Alex and I got a long history. When I was homeless in the late 80s, well, in the early 80s, even early mid 80s, time binding for this part of my life is, is difficult for me. Alex and his father, Ken, and his late mother, Maria, took me in and gave me a home up in the Blue Mountains west of Sydney, about 100 kilometres west of Sydney. And I stayed there for a number of months. I helped them out a bit. I dug up tree stumps so they could extend their house. Um, and just kind of, they taught me a lot about living with people, about being a reasonable human being. And Alex was a child at the time. He's 11 years younger than me. And so I spent time there and I wanted to catch up with Alex in particular and thank him for what his family had done. Uh, the thanks that I gave him was I bought his lunch, which cost about $7. But I reconnected with Alex um, eventually. And um, really, we're going to try to do a dinner next time we're up in Sydney. Sally and I will go to dinner with Alex and his wife. So um, I wanted to catch up with that. But I had tons of time to kill. And... This is the day where I did an incredible amount of walking. So what I did was I went up to Circular Quay, which is the main ferry terminal for Sydney. And it's also the place where in 1788, um, Arthur Phillip, the first governor of New South Wales, landed the first lot of white people for a permanent colony in Australia. Um, that didn't go the way that it does in all the historic reenactments, because what happened was, they had three ships, and they were full of convicts and soldiers, uh, very few free settlers and sailors, of course. So the first thing that happened was everybody went off on shore, stretched out, cut their land legs again, and the male and female convicts fuck like rabbits. You can check the historical record. That's exactly what happened, though. It's been whitewashed, of course, by subsequent generations, but the records of the time show that people were fornicating their little hearts out as one would under those circumstances so every time i go to circular care i think about convicts fucking on the shore of it and smile so i went to circular care and i decided i was going to go over to manly uh which is right at the north part of sydney harbour just near 
the heads where Sydney Harbour goes out into the Tasman Sea, which is a part of the Pacific Ocean between Australia and New Zealand. You go out of Sydney Heads and you don't hit anything until Auckland, which is about 3,000 kilometres away. So it gets beautiful big waves and the continental shelf just drops off outside Sydney Heads. So you get beautiful dark waters and it's a very rich um, environment for aquatic life there until of course we end up overfishing the fuck out of it and killing them and it's one of the great ferry rides of, of the world really it takes about 40 or 50 minutes and it goes right up sydney harbour you go past the harbour bridge past the opera house past pinch gut also known as fort denison renowned for the 1959 ealing film the siege of pinch gut starring aldo ray which I did on the early Paleo Cinema podcast, and you really should see that film. It's a fantastic movie. shows Sydney in the 1950s, and it's a good action thriller as well. And I always think of Aldo Ray getting shot when I go past Pinchcut, which I did. The ferries to Manly and to all the other places in Sydney are basically commuter ferries, so I was going outwards as the commuters were coming inwards. So I had a fairly empty ferry, and I kind of sat up the top at the front and just enjoyed one of the great harbours of the world as i said on facebook sydney harbour is one of the great harbours of the world the land around the edge of it slowly and increasingly being ruined by real estate development but when you're on the water you can still appreciate the wonderfulness of it uh it's a flooded valley when the last ice age uh, ended uh the valley that was sydney harbour flooded so it's a deep limestone valley sandstone valley sorry and it feels like it too you can kind of imagine how it was during the last ice age when sea levels were a lot lower and it was uh, a lot smaller but i really loved the journey out there doesn't cost very much at all i mean the the return trip might have cost me seven or eight bucks but it was just great to not have to do anything in particular sitting up on the top of the front of the ferry and enjoying the view, watching um, speedboats go past and yachts and other ships and um, just being there right where I was, not thinking about the future, not thinking about the past, but just kind of being in the moment. It was a profoundly relaxing experience for me. So I did that. I took a bit of video and I took a bit of still photography as well and um, really enjoyed both of those things as a part of it but i made sure one of the things you can do is you can be looking at the world through your phone if too much if you're not careful when you're doing this kind of thing but i tried deliberately to find a balance between taking the video and taking the photos and just watching and being there and i it was really nice and relaxing so i got off the other end and found coffee because coffee of course is my main um drug And so I found an espresso place on the ferry wharf, had an espresso, walked around the place, and I found the electoral offices of the most benighted Australian politician of the moment, the former Prime Minister Tony Abbott's um, electoral office in his electorate is in Manly. So I took a photo of that and um, said something derogatory about it on Facebook and Instagram. And I was actually looking to do something else too. There's another aspect to this because I was I was kind of trying. I'm I was at that stage after the retirement slash redundancy 
where I was trying to find out who I am because to a great extent we define ourselves by the work we do and when you don't work you get that opportunity and curse of not quite knowing how to define yourself and I was kind of going through that kind of a hassle and I really didn't know I do know now and the whole thing about this Indian journey was I kind of did find myself again but one of the things about wandering around manly was I really kind of wanted to do something a bit different and something that I might not have done while I was working and something that I hadn't done for a long time so I was looking for a place to get my beard shaved off now I've had my beard intact for about 30 odd maybe 30 years maybe a little more and I thought, oh, well, just for a change, I'll shave it off while I'm up here and surprise Sal because ever since I met her 17 years ago, she said, I want you to shave off your beard so I can see your face. Now, she can see my face. It's there. It just had a beard on it. But she's been asking for 17 years. So I went to a Chinese barber who said he couldn't do anything until lunchtime. And I wasn't going to stick around manly until lunchtime which, um, yeah, I had a few of these kind of experiences. I had it with the Empress Puffs. I had it with the Barber, where people said they couldn't do things right then and to come back later, and I went, no, I'm going to do something else instead. So <laughs> I had that experience. I went to a really nice pie shop I know called Hamlet in Manly and had a pie there. They do a really nice homemade in-store, made-in-store pie. So I had that. I went to our pharmacy to get the earplugs I needed because the air conditioning was just that little bit too loud in the hotel room and saw somebody who's a Facebook friend but is also a movie guy, an actor called Tony Bonnet. I didn't say hello because I hate, even if I kind of am Facebook friends with a celebrity, I don't like hassling them when they're lining up at a pharmacy or anywhere else, but I saw Tony and he's looking really well. If you ever saw the TV series uh, Skippy the Bush Kangaroo, Tony Bonner was the helicopter pilot Jerry King in that. He was also in Creatures That Time Forgot, a Hammer film in the 1960s. Uh, if you look up Tony Bonner on IMDb, he's got a long career. He is um, quite conservative politically. I know that from Tony's Facebook page. But in general, he seems to be a really nice guy. And he was looking well. And um, it, was, it was kind of nice to see him looking well without hassling him. So that was the celebrity that I saw on my Sydney trip. So I went around Manly. I, I went to the pharmacy. I had the pie. Um, I asked the lady when the next bus to Sydney was because I thought I've taken the ferry across. Do I really need to take the ferry back? And the next bus was going to be delayed as well because things on my Sydney trip were never happening exactly when I want them, wanted them to happen. So I ended up taking the ferry back and it was even more beautiful going back than it was coming out. Uh, there was a police launch ripping past. There was some really high quality and beautiful high-end um, motor yachts and other things on the harbour. I got to see a part of the world that I know from my past and I'm going to get nostalgic during this podcast. One of the things I did was I wandered around Sydney Harbour a lot when I was young and not quite homeless but again trying to find myself and at Middlehead which um, is around the 
the harbour a little bit from Manly, there's a great big uninhabited area of bushland and rock with Aboriginal rock carvings on it and rock platforms. If you see the movie Stone, the bikie film, the Australian bikie film from the 70s, that fortress where the bikies lived on Sydney Harbour is at Middlehead which gives you a bit of an idea about um, where they all went skinny dipping in the morning and um, had a great time there and got stoned and all that. That's all Sydney, that's all Middlehead. And I remember that I used to hike around Middlehead a fair bit and one of the things I can remember is I was reading Ian Fleming's You Only Live Twice up sitting on a rock outcrop of Middlehead and I was when I was coming back on the ferry ride I remembered that. And I remembered all the nice times I had there and the fact that there's a gully in Middlehead where in the 1970s and 1980s there are a whole bunch of shanties um, with hippies in them growing marijuana and just living off grid in the middle of the most beautiful harbour in an enormous in the middle of an enormous city. There was this little gully full of hippies in Middlehead um, who... Uh, just lived there there was enough water trickling down the hills for them to have a water supply they had rainwater tanks they had little shacks and for a very long time they lived there until of course people who thought they knew better threw them out so that was very nostalgic coming back into Sydney from uh, Manly and just kind of enjoying the harbour again and appreciating that even though there are enormous changes to Sydney since I lived there uh, and I left there in 1990 and went to Canberra and then Melbourne um, it, there are things that are eternal there the harbour some of the um, national park areas and the bushland around the harbour then hopefully not going to change in the future there and I, I remember them incredibly well and I remember what it was like to hike around there and get puffed walking up hills and then sitting down and drinking some drink and having a banana or an apple or an orange and reading a paperback that I had shoved down the back pocket of my jeans. Uh, there, there are things about Sydney Harbour that are never going to change but one of the other things is there are things about Sydney itself, the city and the area around the city that have changed enormously in the years since I've lived there and the years since I was young. Um, on the way back we went past Taronga Park Zoo which is one of the most spectacularly situated zoos in the world and I remember once upon a time when I was about 13 or 14 my brother Gary and I took the train into the city from Liverpool which is about 30 kilometres out of the city where we were living at the time and we took the ferry across to Taronga Zoo and didn't go to the zoo. What we did was we fished off the wharf and caught fish. Now the problem was this was summertime and we had only plastic bags to put the fish in and we had to travel like two or three hours to get home. And so by the time we got home the fish were off because we didn't have any ice, we didn't have anything to put ice in. But the fact that we caught meal sized fish off a wharf in Sydney Harbour was something that I remember with a lot of pleasant nostalgia. We'd have to pull the lines in whenever the ferries came in and pretend that we weren't fishing when people came around. But uh, we did fish off there and you could catch fish off that wharf and get yourself a meal as well, which 
I'm not sure that I'm not even I don't even know where on Sydney Harbour you're allowed to fish these days. I'm sure you're allowed to at some places off some beaches and off some rock ledges and things like that. But you're not allowed to fish off wharves anymore. Nor for that matter are you know 13 or 40 year old kids allowed to travel great distances on public transport to catch fish anymore. Uh, unaccompanied minors are uh, the questions are asked by police these days. Whereas in those days. We were never hassled by police at all. Uh, it was just one of those things where I at least had a lot of autonomy as a child and as a young teenager, which people don't have now. Um, some people can see that as abuse, and to be honest with you, I was an abused child. I was physically and psychologically abused by my father for a lot of years. And to be able to go to a, the Taronga Park Zoo and fish off the wharf was a sanity thing for me it was something that I did to get away from the problems that I had at home and I kept that up for many many years going to see movies when I was 15 after I finished a full day's work because it was very unpleasant to go home uh, was something I did as well I found sanctuaries and for me fishing off the wharf at Taronga Park Zoo was a sanctuary going to the cinema when I was 15 Travelling 30 or 40 kilometres to do that was a sanctuary. And it was an unusual childhood, it was an unusual life to live. And it's not something that I'd wish on anybody else. Even Donald Trump, were he 15, I would not wish this upon him, the kind of life I had when I was that age. So anyway, I got back to Circular Quay again and uh, headed up towards King's Cross to have lunch with Alex. Now, King's Cross used to be called the Dirty Mile. It was it was full of gambling places and prostitutes and strip clubs, of which some survive. Adult newspapers, the King's Cross Whisper was a salacious newspaper in the 60s and 70s, um, being sued left, right and centre by people. It was um, full of nudity and sex and other good things and was really... Uh, <laughs> kind of the sort of thing that nice people didn't watch and the sort of place where nice people didn't go as far as everybody else knew though of course a number of them did this was before sydney had legal casinos run by big ugly murdoch owned corporations and packer owned corporations and there was a lot of um two-up games and casinos some of which were patronized by politicians and um, police. There was a guy called Fred Cray who ran two brothels and the Vice Squad in Sydney in the 1960s. So King's Cross always had a, a very salacious kind of feel to it. So I went up to the cross and it's now a kind of backpackers area and tourist area. It's not what it used to be. Uh, it's a kind of like Times Square in New York. They disnified Times Square and Playland and all those other places shut down and for those people who lived there during the more adult times in both King's Cross and Times Square regret the changes and I kind of liked King's Cross the way it was it was naughty just going there was a kind of rebellion against conservatism and rebellion against sexual repression in a lot of ways I went to New Year's Eve at King's Cross once when I was about 16 17 uh, as you did when you were kind of a wild child the way I was. 
and at midnight at New Year's Eve up in Darlinghurst Road, which is one of the main drags of King's Cross. Um, there were, it was just packed with packed with people, totally wall-to-wall people, and there were a number of brothels uh, above street level on both sides of Darlinghurst Road. And at midnight on New Year's Eve, naked sex workers, female sex workers, were waving from the windows of all of the brothels along Darlinghurst Road and wishing everybody Happy New Year and kind of celebrating along with everybody else in their own sweet way. And I can remember thinking at the time, I have never seen so many naked breasts in my life. It was just a weird and wonderful time. And um, I made my way back home eventually at about three in the morning, dead tired with this kind of my ears buzzing from the shouting and the cheering of New Year's Eve in King's Cross. This was before everything was down by the harbour and they had the enormous fireworks displays that they have now. In those days, people just went to basically social centres and in a sense, King's Cross was an entertainment district. So I kind of I have a long history with King's Cross. There was a place called the Flea Market in King's Cross near the LA Main Fountain where you go down into a basement and they had all sorts of wonderful things. They had a poster shop where you could buy posters of Jane Fonda in Barbarella and um, Raquel Welch in When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth and all those sorts of things. They had a place where you could have a newspaper printed up with your name on it and salacious headlines and little stores that sold incense and uh, palmistry and fortune telling of various kinds. And all sorts of kind of countercultural and hippie stuff was available at the flea market downstairs. Now, you can't even find the building where the flea market was these days. There was also a place called the Yellow House, which was a big three or four story terrace house run by artists who turned the whole house into a work of art. Famous Australian artists like Martin Sharp and other people were there. I went there once because... Um, I had a teacher who took us to the museum down at the bottom of William Street in Sydney as a school excursion when I was a teenager. And she wanted to see the Yellow House. And so there were about 15 of us. So what happened was she snuck us up into King's Cross after going to the museum and we went through the Yellow House, which is one of the great art installations of the 1960s that I actually got to see when I was a school kid. And the artists who were there, people like Martin Sharp and all the other artists who were there at the time, were there and they explained to us what their works of art were. And they were fantastic. There was an entire room decorated and painted in white, which was amazing. There was a big fireplace and the mantelpiece was an enormous topless hippie woman uh, sculpted by one of the artists. And I thought that was the best thing in the universe. And there were just things that were weird and wonderful. And even though as a kid, I didn't understand all the artwork, I still remember it as being a magical and wonderful place where grown-ups explained what they were doing to children. Even though some of the um, artwork was a bit adult and the teacher made us all promise that we weren't going to tell anyone at school that we went to the, what, to the Yellow House. Um, the fact that I got to go there was wonderful and uh, it was on Maclay Street in King's Cross which is the kind of right angles to um, Darlinghurst Road. So I've got a lot of history with King's Cross and I like it a lot. And I went back there and it was all just backpackers and 
um, McDonald's and Thai massage places, of course, and pawn shops and things like that. It, it's kind of changed in ways that I didn't really like. So anyway, I caught up with Alex. We had a brief lunch because he was quite busy. And I thanked him and his family for what they'd done for me all those years ago. And we kind of left real, on really good terms. And that it was a nice moment for me. It was kind of acknowledging my past, in a sense. And so I enjoyed that. Went back to the room for a while and kind of rested up. And then had dinner with my sister and my brother-in-law and my seven-year-old nephew, Billy, at a place called Uma's, not too far away from where I had lunch with Alex. And it does enormous schnitzels. And I caught up with Gavin and Linda and Billy and um, had a nice evening of it and then kind of went back to the room and crashed again. And by the time I'd finished all of that, I'd walked 22,000 steps. Oh, the other thing I did, I've forgotten, I've, I've missed a step here. I apologize. The other thing I did was I went down to Maroubra and I visited my mother. Now, I did something stupid when I visited my mother, which doesn't impact her at all. But it was a fairly hot day and it was quite humid and I got off the wrong bus and had to walk three kilometers uphill to get to the nursing home where mum was. And I, I ended up drinking two bottles of water and I was sweating and I took a break in the middle because it was just an arduous task to get up there. So um, I finally got to there and I let myself in, introduced myself to the uh, staff there and went up and spent about 50 minutes having a chat with mum in one of the sunrooms in the nursing home it's not a bad place uh it's not expensive and top end it doesn't have somebody sitting down playing a grand piano for the entertainment of the inmates none of that kind of thing but we caught up and she recognized me she doesn't keep names very well and she asked me about my daughter meaning sally my wife and um she was in a really good way she was in a much better way when she was living at home and she was kind of happy and smiling and she was glad to see me and she told me she loved me and that I was beautiful and we had a great 50 minutes and then she said goodbye I've got to go to the toilet now and so I took her to the where the toilet was in her walker and I said goodbye and told her that I loved her and went back to the room now she has dementia uh, and but it's a kind sort of dementia that she has in that all of the bad things and there are some monstrously bad things in my mother's past which i'm not going to go into details of but they're as bad as it gets in some ways and she doesn't remember those things she lives in the moment she lives right where she is right at the time and even though dementia is a monstrously nasty and horrible thing the kind that she has even though it does piss her off and annoy her at times and frustrate her a lot the fact that she doesn't remember all of the bad things that happened in the past makes it a kind of a merciful kind of dementia in a sense and that's a weird thing and it's contradictory and it's against everything you hear in the media about dementia and it's not the kind that everybody experiences but it's the kind that she's experiencing and when I go, I always, I'm always apprehensive when I go and visit her because you, I don't know until I get there how much she's deteriorated. And so you always have that apprehension about it. Is she going to recognize me? 
is she going? Yeah, are things going to go bad in some way when I go and see her? And this time they didn't. It was wonderful. It was a good memory. It was a good time, and I'm, it was the core reason why I went up to Sydney, and it went really well. It, it really did um, reassure me. Uh, she enjoyed it as well, and I saw where she was living and how she was living, and it's not a bad place. And so I kind of went over, had another coffee across the road from there and thought about it and um, kind of thought about how much worse things could have been than they were. Uh, she could have had the kind of alcohol, well, she did drink a bit, but she didn't drink to excess all the time. But my father apparently, and I never saw this, had alcoholic dementia and thought that electricity was crawling through the walls and coming to torture him. And every nasty thing he ever did in his life, and there were a number, he should have been in prison for all of his life. So at the end of his life, he died angry and scared and insane. And to be honest, that's poetic justice. Um, and I, But I'm really glad that my mother didn't experience that and didn't go through all of that. And the dementia that she has is comforting her in a really fucked up kind of way so anyway after i had dinner with linda and gavin i was totally knackered and exhausted because as i said twenty-two thousand steps in a day the equivalent of 68 flights of stairs i walked in the day and so i went and um crashed out again fairly early in the tiny little room with the earplugs and the air conditioning unit and the single bed and i slept really well so i woke up crazy early because of that and again it was another beautiful day it was warm it was um humid uh there was a slight breeze it was really lovely so i went to circular key again and took a different ferry uh at about 6 30 in the morning i took a ferry over to cremorne and mossman now they're not as far away as um manly is but i managed to do a couple of really nice things I managed to go past the Sydney Opera House just as the sun was rising behind it and it was backlit by the sun. Took a fantastic photo of that. Took a fantastic photo of Pinchgut, Fort Denison, in a sea of gold as the sun was rising. And then the Cremorne Mothman Ferry goes into these quiet backwater inlets of the harbour where people walk down from their incredibly expensive houses to commute into the city. And... Uh, this was still too early businessmen don't get it seven o'clock in the morning businessmen are taking the ferry into the city they're all coming in later than that so it was probably one of the first either the first or second ferry of the morning and the water was beautifully calm and slightly rippled there was a cool breeze on the water and the ferry was one of the small ones a little ferry called supply and so i was up at the back deck of that just kind of detoxing from the world and just again being in the moment and, and reflective and uh, just chilling out entirely and thinking that there was nowhere in the world right at that moment that I'd rather be than sitting on the back uh, end of that ferry just cruising around Sydney Harbour again an incredibly cheap way of having a marvellous experience and I got back and started walking up into the city uh, trying to find somewhere for breakfast and all the breakfast places because this is the business district 
of Sydney, which is never a pretty place in any city in anywhere in the world. There's no beautiful business district. Maybe La Défense in Paris has a certain grand architectural beauty about it, but for the general thing, it's vertical canyons of glass and steel and nothing much there. And all of the breakfast places where, you know, grab a sandwich and run kind of places, grab a takeaway coffee, there wasn't really anywhere until I was halfway back to Town Hall Station where I found a place where I could sit down and just kind of have a breakfast, get out my moleskin notebook, which I have right here beside me. By the way, moleskin notebooks are the best thing in the world. And I kind of uh, reflected on the business districts in cities and what they represent. And they're, they're kind of the places where people believe in the market and believe the bullshit of capitalism. And they all gather there to do stuff and to try to be as rich as they can as quick as they can and try to climb the ladder for the sake of there just being a ladder and the only reason they do it is because there's a ladder there and because everything is made so expensive by the people at the top of that ladder and I reflected on it and reflected how I was really glad that I'm at a stage of my life where I don't have to go into work every day I probably I may well go back to work at some stage there's still um, an open jury on that one but at this stage I don't have to do that I don't have to do things I don't want to do as much as I used to and that's kind of a nice place to be but it made me sad for the people who are just on the start of that who um, unless society drastically changes the number of people and the way people are going to be used by businesses and by the machinery of capitalism and by the people who believe that the market cures everything bad in the world is going to increase. Uh, things like you've got to be careful on social media because you don't know who's going to look at it when you're going for a job next. So you can't reflect your true self and you can't have your own unfettered opinions because somebody in the future may look over your shoulder. Um, I find that inconscionable. I, I find it a really nasty and horrible place for people's minds to be. And I was kind of glad to be out of that. So I did find a nice little cafe and it had a brioche with um, bacon and eggs and some salad stuff onto it and a little bit of avocado and just sat there and had a coffee and kind of wondered why business areas in cities had to be that ugly i don't think necessarily they do but because real estate is so expensive they cram so much inside buildings that the outside of people don't think about and it, it was a really weird thing until i walked down an alley after i had the breakfast i walked down an alley and somebody had put a bit of artwork there that was mind-blowing what it was, was horizontally suspended about 10 metres off the ground in an alley between two buildings, was a tree trunk and the root ball of a tree trunk um, running down the length of the alley and held up by metal stanchions. And it was just, what the fuck? There was this dead tree horizontally, and it was a big tree, it wasn't a small tree, it was 20 metres long at least, suspended over this alley, in contrast to the bricks and the steel and the glass all around it. And it was weird, but 
in retrospect, I really liked it. I liked the fact that somebody made a statement about nature versus business, uh, which was kind of paralleling my thought processes at the time. It was really a, a lovely thing for me to see that, though I didn't appreciate it at the time, and I put a picture of it up on Facebook and on YouTube. But only now do I really think that it's a nice piece of artwork because it's thumbing its nose at a lot of the things that I disliked about being in the central business district in Sydney. So that was um, Wednesday. And Wednesday was going to be fairly busy for me because I had lunch arranged with Bruce Creevy at Fox Studios. Then in the afternoon, I was going to meet up with a Facebook friend who I'd never met in real life, Carrie McKern, who is a poet and is also the niece of the actor Leo McKern. And at some stage, Carrie and I are going to talk about Leo on the podcast. And I'd never met Carrie. So we arranged for her to pick me up after I had lunch with Bruce. So in the morning, I walked all the way back to the hotel room and kind of had a little bit of rest there, took my shoes off for a little bit, and then headed over to Fox Studios, which used to be the show, Sydney showgrounds, to have lunch with Bruce. And when I got there, something occurred to me. This was the couple of days during the week when the Me Too meme came out with women after the Harvey Firestein revelations were putting their stories all over social media with the hashtag Me Too about how they've been abused by men. And I was back where the Royal Easter Show used to be in Sydney but is now an entertainment precinct called Around Fox Studios. And I thought about something that I hadn't thought about for a lot of years when I was about 14. I went to the Sydney Easter show and I went into a haunted house um, amusement ride in the sideshow area and I was assaulted by a man. Uh, what happened was he grabbed me by the neck and pulled me into a dark corner of the haunted house area and tried to get me to jerk him off. Now eventually the attendants found us, it must have been five or six minutes and I was terrified and yeah it was just a crazy bad experience and the attendants threw us both out. But I was thinking about the fact that, yeah, that was an assault. That was a sexual assault. The guy was trying to get me to jerk him off and holding me by the back of my neck like you hold a dog by the scruffer's neck and try to get me to do it. So um, I put in uh, Me Too on Facebook about it because I was having lunch at the same location where that occurred many, many, many years later, of course. Uh, I actually told Bruce about this while we were having lunch. So Bruce is a lovely guy. He works at the moment for Animal Logic. He's working on the Peter Rabbit movie and doing a lot of the um, computer animation stuff for that. And we were talking. He was talking about how the technology is evolving for that kind of thing, and how having technology be so flexible with the animation that one of the problems with it is it gives directors too many choices. And the directors then can make changes, which mean a lot more work for everybody else on a whim. And the fact that so much of it's not the director, the studio and the people at the top end have an inordinate amount of say in the creative process. So we talked about a lot of those things. We talked about um, his future career. We talked about the stuff he did for the last Planet of the Apes movie. He's working crazy long hours at the moment to get this Peter Rabbit movie ready by the deadline and they're hoping they don't they won't have to make any changes though they did 
had one change of voice actor at the last minute, which meant a whole bunch of rework. Um, on it. it was just amazing getting the inside stuff. I'm going to get Bruce on the podcast too to talk about that stuff because it really is interesting getting an insider's view. Not at the top end of things. Not the people who go on press junkets and talk about the movies at the top end. But for one of the people whose names appear on those enormous scrolls of credits that we get before the post-credit sequences. And how life is for those people. So Bruce and I are going to do that. And Bruce is a lovely guy. And his partner, Manette's lovely. I haven't met her yet, but I'm looking forward to doing that. But it's always good to catch up with Bruce. So we had a stake in an um, Irish pub there. And the Me Too thing went up. And then Carrie pulled up in her Saab convertible. And we went off to have coffee. Now, Carrie is a poet and an eccentric and really interesting person. Had a long and interesting life in a lot of ways. Uh, We caught up and we kind of told each other about our lives more than we had on social media. And we talked about science fiction. Uh, She's a big fan of hard science fiction, people like Gregory Benford. And so we had a um, long rambling chat while we ripped across town to go to a place called Deus on Parramatta Road. Now, Deus is an interesting cafe because half of it's a cafe and the other half is a motorcycle museum with a whole bunch of motorcycle merch and a whole bunch of vintage restored bikes sitting around as a display. It's just a a weird and wonderful place. So Carrie and I are talking science fiction and things like that, and she's a poet. One of the lovely things, and this is one of the things I'm going to enjoy for a very long time is, she declaimed one of her poems to me while we were sitting having a coffee. And that was wonderful. I was listening very carefully. And when you first hear poetry, you don't see it written down, but you hear it performed. And it was a performance just for me. You kind of let the words and the images wash over you and just absorb them almost through your skin. So we, I listened to that one. And then uh, she was going to drop me off at uh, King Street in Newtown because I was going to go and do a little bit of shopping at Gould Secondhand Books and things like that. So we're ripping through the side streets in the Saab, getting over to King Street. And we talked about China for some reason. We got on the subject of China. And in the car while we're ripping through these streets, and Carrie drives with great skill and great speed, uh, she gave me her poem about um, visiting Shanghai in China. So I get all of this um, grand and beautifully lyrical and evocative poetry reading just for me while we're sitting in the car and it was incredibly cool it was just one of the it was a totally unexpected moment and a moment of total joy just to sit there and let the poem wash over me and um it was just life affirming and a lot of fun and a gift that was given to me by somebody I'd just met, but we've been on Facebook and, and talking about getting on the podcast and things like that. But the gift was meant a lot to me. It was really, um, particularly given the fact that I had the Me Too thing earlier in the day, it was just one of those things where the universe paid me back a little bit for a somewhat bad experience. And so um, we said goodbye, we're going to catch up again in the future and definitely on the podcast. Uh, We're probably going to talk about The Day the Earth Caught Fire, which is among Leo's best work in a film. And I I was left feeling really good after I got out of the car. It was just a really lovely experience. 
So I, I bought a few things. I bought Sally a Bride of Frankenstein money box that I found in King Street. I bought a couple of books at Gould's, though I could have bought 2,000 books. Uh, but after the two very hectic days, I was feeling a little bit tired. So again, I went back to the room in Chinatown, which I was growing to love by this stage. It was a sanctuary in the middle of um, a beautifully vibrant part of the city. So I went back there. Uh, I got some Emperor Puffs, finally. So I ate them, and they were just as good as I remember. Beautiful, just the best street dessert I know of. And it was getting towards dinner time at that stage, so I remembered that there was a food court up the top end of Dixon Street on the left-hand side that I'd been to about 30 years ago. And I thought, I'm going to see if it's still there. So I wandered up there, I took a few photos of things, and the food court's still there, and it hasn't changed a hell of a lot. So I ended up with a plate full of Indonesian yellow rice with a bit of chicken and beef rendang on it. Enormously flavorful food. I asked them to put as much chili on as they would, so it was full of chili and other spices, lots of rice, um, a little bit of potato on the side. That thing where they mix dried fish with peanuts was one of the condiments on the side of it. And it was spicy goodness. And I just kind of sat there. I was the only Caucasian in the food court, which tells me that it was a good place to be. And I felt totally at home and totally comfortable with that. Once upon a time when the world was young, if there were too many people who were not of my ethnicity about round, I was uncomfortable. But I've got to the stage where I like that. I like the fact that I'm the outsider sometimes and I'm the person that isn't um, seen in a weird way as a native. And I kind of enjoyed that. I, I just sat there, I had my food, I had my drink and I knew it was my last night in Sydney before I had to go back. And I was at peace with the world, eating spicy food and watching um, that weird uh, dating show that's on SBS, the Chinese one with the bald guy in it, and reading the subtitles off it as people talk about people they've only just met and how attractive they are and how attractive they're not. And I was, again, totally in the moment. It was just a really nice time. So, um, again, I crashed out fairly early and I woke up even earlier and packed the bag. I had a 7.30 um, train back to Sydney, from Sydney to Melbourne. So I actually turned up at the station about an hour early and got a coffee from the coffee cart and kind of just stretched out and relaxed. Muscles were feeling a little sore because I had two days of much, much more walking, particularly up and down hills than I'd had in a very long time. So the leg muscles were starting to be sore. And I'd probably dropped about three or four kilos during the time I was up there, which is not a bad thing. So, I mean, I can afford to. I was kind of dreading the, the trip back to Melbourne, not for going back to Melbourne because I did miss Sal, but for the length of the journey back. I, I don't think I'm ever going to do the train again unless they put in a bullet train very fucking fast because it's just too long a trip with unreliable Wi-Fi, and just too much spare time but i did use the time in a way because i became reflective of things now one of the things i'd always done in life is ref is define myself as being a sydney cider i was from sydney i've spent more than half of my life in sydney and that's still true at least for the next few years and so i define myself as a sydney cider but when i went back there there was a weird overlay uh, there were all the things i remember from the past my history 
the places I've been to, uh, all the sanctuaries I'd found, because all of the stuff where nightmarish things happened to me, with the exception of the Easter show thing, happened about 30, 40 kilometers west of Sydney, southwest of Sydney. And so the places I like around Sydney are my sanctuaries of the, of the past. The places, my bolt holes, they were the places I escaped and where I saw movies and travelled around on ferries when I walked across the harbour bridge in the middle of the night because I saw a late movie in North Sydney and all the transport had shut down by the time the movie came out. So the only way back to anywhere was to walk across the Sydney Harbour Bridge in the middle of the night. And I did that and I loved it. Um, all of those sanctuary things were there but I kind of came to the realization that I can't really define myself as a Sydney sider anymore but then I don't really feel like I'm a Melbourne person I'm not a Melbourneian either I'm a, I know I'm Australian and, and that's fairly obvious from the fucking accent but I was kind of thinking about the ways I define myself and how I define who I am and it came to me that the cultures I'm a part of are not geographically based cultures to a big extent. The first big one in my life was in my early 20s when I found science fiction fandom. And science fiction fandom, by its very nature at the time, was an international thing. We had writers coming in from overseas to conventions and we, they, um, they talked about the wider world of science fiction. There were fanzines that were sent across the planet physical objects rather than ones and zeros and there were letters sent between people and fanzines and gifts and books and, and all sorts of things so science fiction fandom had always been in my experience an international thing and for me as an adult that was the first society and, and the first community of which I was part and I still am a part of that so there is that and then um, I was thinking about my more recent ones the, the social media things and the podcasting community, and they're international as well. They're not geographically based in any way. You are somebody in Beijing doing an English language podcast has as much access and as much availability of their work as somebody in London or New York or Sydney or Melbourne or Perth or Zamboanga. Um, again, it's an international community, and maybe for some reason I'm drawn to international communities. I'm drawn to the things where people don't all live the same life and don't all support the same football teams. Uh, not that I support any football teams. But I'm drawn to international cultures, and my cultures, even before the internet existed, were about shared interests, and more than they were ever about a racial or ethnic or community identity in the geographical sense and that's kind of why I'm comfortable with social media to a greater extent than a lot of other people my age because a I'm self-educated and so anything new I'm drawn to like a moth to a flame but also uh, all of my cultures have been international cultures all of my communities that have supported me and that I've supported have been international by the natures and so defining myself as a Sydney cider or a Melbourneian or anything like that is of very little interest to me and I really kind of came to that realization on the long boring train trip home that I'm going to stop defining myself by those things 
uh, I would communicate. I, I do things. I, I do the radio with Darwin. I do the podcast, of course. But I'm not defining myself by my geography anymore. I don't think that that's who I am and who I want to be. That's that's one of the things that I came to the decision about. And well, it's kind of an epiphany for me, and it was quite a useful thing for me. So I'm not a Sydney sider anymore. But I love the place, and indeed there are places around Melbourne as well that I love. And I'm going to define myself by my passions and not by my geography at this stage. And it's a big adventure to redefining yourself as well. Uh, it's a weird thing, and it's a scary thing in a lot of ways, but I think it's something that I've really had to do, given my recent life circumstances. And, that, and that's a cool thing, and I'm, I'm really kind of fine with that and one of the other things i decided particularly based on the kind of people who are on the train who were maybe kind of seeing the end of their life as a bad thing uh, i don't want to be the kind of older man who can't or won't embrace positive changes that ha when they happen in the world i've got to choose who i am and what i believe in and I think social media is an incredibly positive thing. I think there are perils to it and there are people who misuse it. But I'm kind of embracing the change. I'm embracing the fact that gender isn't just an on-off switch and that um, marriage equality is something that should happen. And that people, and the, the, even the changes that are coming out of the Me Too campaign and the fact that women aren't putting up with so many of the, the egregiously torturous things that they have put up with in the past. And the society cannot but change because of those things and because of the empowerment of women. And the empowerment of women doesn't come from men. It comes from women finding their own courage and finding other people to support them and other women to tell their stories and other people to say me too, whether they are men or women now. There is a, a school of thought that men shouldn't have put in Me Too in that recent meme because the whole thing was about the Harvey Weinstein thing and about abuse of women. There are other people who say that um, men have been abusive to men as well and that for men like me to have a Me Too moment in that flood of social media that came out around abuse of men well, abuse by men, sorry. Um, it's an okay thing. And I'm kind of going with that because I really felt the need after listening respectfully to all of the stories that I heard from women on social media about the Me Too thing, that it was okay for me to put in my piece. Other people can disagree and I respect that opinion and um, I won't kind of complain about it if they feel that way. But I felt the need to do it. And so it's kind of, I'm kind of in an interesting transitional place in my life where I can do more of what I enjoy than I used to. And the other side of that too is um, when you've got so much choice, narrowing down on exactly what you want to do and when you want to do it and having the discipline to do it can be a little bit of a difficult thing. So I'm going to be a bit more disciplined in in what I do with the podcasts and with the radio. And also I've got a couple of scripts written for the YouTube channel with which I've done nothing. So I'm going to do those as well. So what I've got to do is find that. And the other thing I'm going to do, which the Sydney thing really 
gave me as a, a fantastic gift is catch up with people when I possibly can because I caught up with Alex, I caught up with Carrie, I caught up with Bruce, I caught up with my mum, I caught up with my sister and my brother-in-law and my nephew and just having even just a lunch with people is an incredibly life-affirming thing that I want to do a lot more of. I really want to kind of do that and also stepping outside of my comfort zone to the extent of going to a tiny room in Chinatown and really loving what was happening happening there as well uh, and kind of just going with the flow of where I was and it wasn't quite an international experience but it was an experience in another culture in another place and that too was a good thing for me so yeah I'm a work in progress the way I always was and I always probably will be nonetheless I really did enjoy that week and it was also good to come home where I got an enormous hug at the train station and Sal saw me without the beard by the way I'm growing the beard back because I don't like the way I look without it um she said I looked handsome and all that kind of thing uh and yeah it was a it was a truly great fun adventure and uh there, there are more adventures out there too in two weeks time Sally and I are spending a fortnight in Tasmania which I haven't really seen apart from the airport and small parts of Hobart. So we're doing that as another adventure as well, and that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm sure I'll learn a lot from that. So embracing change and embracing newness and embracing redefining myself has been a good thing for me with all of this stuff. So yeah, the future is bright if I want it to be bright, and it can be gloomy if I want it to be gloomy, but again, the choices are mine. Nonetheless, uh, that's about it for this podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for letting me get all of this shit off my chest. If you've got any feedback, please give it to me because I really like it. And we're going back to normal programming next time around. I promise there will be movies. There will be people talking with me about movies. In fact, I'll just send a Facebook message through to somebody so that we can arrange uh, the hookup for the podcast. And, um, yeah, life is kind of good. Anyway, uh, thank you for listening. I'll be back next time. Thank you again to the Patreon subscribers and all of their support and their love. And uh, look after yourselves. Keep watching this, guys. Um, Just have a good time. And if you're feeling in a rut, so take care and I'll catch up with you guys later. Bye. And here are the credits. Thank you to Tom the Focus Puller, Sarah the Special Effects Technician, Ian the Caterer, Grant the Technicolor Consultant, Claire the Script Doctor, Gary the Prop Master, Morris our Music Director, Jan our Dialect Coach, Armin our Key Grip, Matt our Rattlesnake Wrangler, Elaine our Scientific Advisor, Julia our Casting Director, Chris the Camera Operator, Christopher the Gaffer, Miss Jane the Wardrobe Mistress, Tansy our Foley Artist, Alyssa our Location Scout, Mark our Set and Unit Director, Paul our Special Effects Makeup Special Makeup Effects Director, Tammy our Donut Wrangler, Tim our New York Unit Director, Rabbi Steve our Spiritual Advisor. 
Steve, our monster effects guy. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Richard H., the set photographer. Mark D., extra. David L., the extra. Richard C., our transportation co-captain. Carrie L., our Tasmanian consultant. And Kerry C., our accountant. We also have Sally, our continuity girl. And, of course, the other Sally, who is always helpful and encouraging and wonderful. So thank you very much to all of the Patreon subscribers. You too can be a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as a dollar per month. 